J.B. Priestley is a great advocate of the cheerful countenance and a great believer in robust common sense. Hear what he tells a gathering in aid of the Greater London Fund for the Blind. We know very well this war is no joke, that great sacrifices will be demanded of us. In fact, we know it so well that we don't need an endless series of mournful politicians and officials to keep telling us. <laughs> if we're compelled to make our minds as dreary, gloomy and fanatical as Hitler's, then we've given him the victory. <laughs> but if on top of that dogged resolution, which has always been a notable characteristic of the British, we build high, shining towers of humour and music and cheerful comradeship, then we completely defy Hitler and his ant-like hordes and at the same time enjoy our own way of life. Therefore I say, let the people sing! Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. That was, of course, John Boynton Priestley, Mr. J.B. Priestley, Jack to his friends, the subject of today's podcast. I am Catherine, as ever, STR8. Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkenglish.co.uk. If you put a forward slash and a books on there, you can buy the books that go along with my seasons. The book for this one, I'm aiming next couple of weeks, that is going to be out. I'm on the third draft. This can happen. It's going to be beautiful. Thank you very much to everyone who has subscribed to Patreon so far. Forward slash support the show. Every donation matters. Thank you so much, team. Let's get into this. As I said, John Boynton Priestley. What a name. Though, throughout his whole life, he would be known as Jack. So, I'm going to be calling him Priestley or Jack interchangeably. He was born in 1894. That means he spent his first seven years of his life as an Edwardian and he actually died in the same week that Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax was in the charts. I had to put that in as a fact right because he died in 1984 as a very old man. He saw the whole 20th century pretty much most of the good bits but we want to focus on his first 50 years that's the important bit because that leads up to an inspector calls so his dad was a teacher and the first member of his family to have become literate his grandfather was a countryside person who moved to the city in the manner that a lot of people did looking for work in the working class and his dad was this self-made man big socialist big inspiration to jack growing up jack's mother emma passed away when jack was two they'd only been married for five years and you'd think since Priestley had a stepmother you'd think oh wicked stepmother like this might be the cold family atmosphere that led to him thinking of the Burlings but it wasn't really the case he said he had a very happy childhood his stepmother was called Amy Parker 
and he was very lovingly raised. His grandma lived with him for quite a long time. And he said later, when I was very young, we had my grandmother living with us. And whenever my parents went out for the evening, my grandmother fed and entertained me. After we'd eaten our rice pudding, she revealed to me the daily life, customs and folklore of the West Riding in Yorkshire in the 1840s and 1850s. 10 university lectures and 20 certified teachers could not have given me as much as she did. In sheer quantity, yes, but not in quality. What was there, illuminating everything, was the magic that begins with personal experience and demands a certain detachment close to wonder. This personal experience thing comes up again and again. Where the Burlings live is fictional. It's called Brumley, B-R-U-M-L-E-Y which always makes me laugh because I grew up in Bromley, B-R-O-M-L-E-Y, in South East London. So I will perpetually make the mistake and be like, when they're in Bromley, going to the Glades Shopping Centre, so exciting, my misspent youth. Bromley, back on track, Bromley, were it to be anywhere, is in Yorkshire, near Leeds and Bradford. And as you heard in the clip at the start, he has a very strong Yorkshire accent. A lot of his knowledge of these places, which come up again and again and again in his books are the land of his childhood all of this is coming from personal experience let's move on a little bit let's think about socialism growing up i'd like to think we're all sort of influenced by our parents political views and jonathan priestley the daddo was very old-fashioned he was a strongly religious man he had a really strong christian faith and he believed in the power of a working man jack said he was the man socialists had in mind when they write about socialism bradford after hearing what he thought of it came at last to cherish him among the older citizens up there i have never really lived up to him merely representing a showy falling off so a lot of these extracts which i'm reading come from the closest thing he did to an autobiography so jack never wrote down his memoirs but he did write a book called margin released which is about his like intellectual journey as a writer how i became a writer and he diverts some fair bits and that's where a lot of these autobiographical extracts come from other than that his son released a lot of his letters so where i'm getting my information from is primarily margin released but also his correspondence later you'd have thought with his dad being such a serious person jack would have grown up being like education 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 like people used to say in the 90s and being a serious fella no no he wasn't apparently he was well known in the town for being somewhat of a snappy dresser <laughs> which i love the idea of him just wearing like ludicrous colors together like clashing patterns <laughs> and he got a lot of this enthusiasm for this like dramatic lifestyle through the theater he loved going to the theater and even though his dad wanted him to stay in school he dropped out when he was 16 to work for helm and company a firm of wool merchants now this could be the model for Burling and Co. I'll come back to this, but I think the Burlings are involved in wool and cloth manufacture. This is also the only office job Priestley really had. So it kind of is where he would base his idea of the works 
from. He thought it was a good idea to get a job, but he actually hated it. He said, I was not the office boy. And that's like halfway between an administrator and an intern. It's a pretty rubbish job. Low as I was, there was one even lower. At times we were between office boys and then I had to fill inkwells, put out blotting paper, uncover the typewriters, work the copying press and take enormous bundles of samples to the general post office. A chore I particularly detested. But then I detested the whole sample side of the business. Sometimes I felt my golden youth was slipping away between those sheets of blue wrapping paper. Yeah, yeah, he did hate this job. And let's face it, we all hate our jobs sometimes. But his job let him travel. When he got a little bit more responsibility, he was sent out to meet with like other wool, wool dealers. Makes it sound a bit dodged, doesn't it? But like wool firms and importers. I know he went on a holiday to Copenhagen, Amsterdam and Cologne. Cologne. Um, and he had a lovely time. He loved travelling in Europe. Once he had some money in his pocket, we can go on to Priestley's number one interest in life, which is girls. Like, seriously, this guy's love life is like something off of EastEnders, to be honest. It's constant relationships, constant chasing women, constant crushes. It's just hilarious. But as a teenager, he finally gets to go out and meet girls. And this is directly something that is in in spectacles. His experiences going out as a teenager are what informed Gerald and Eric's confessions. In margin released, he would say, if I do not shake my head now, however, it's because I was still too young to observe the town with its lid off. An ultra-respectable suburb like ours, I began to see, had too many divided men, all heavily solemn and frock-coated on a Sunday morning, too coarsely raffish, like sleazy, well away from their families on Saturday night, managers who were obdurate, like stubborn, if the mill girls wanted another shilling a week, could be found in distant pubs, turning the prettiest and the weakest of them into tarts. Over 30 years later, I made some use of these discoveries in a play, and Inspector Calls, set in 1912. I do love it when he tells me, like, what informed it. Sometimes that's just really helpful. But, 1912, we know what's coming up. Two years later, the First World War breaks out. Jack decides to join up he joins the army voluntarily but he doesn't really know why he said years later i often asked myself why i had joined the army the usual explanations were no good i was not hot with patriotic feeling i didn't believe britain was in any real danger i was sorry for gallant little belgium but didn't feel she was waiting for me to rescue her the legend of kitchener who pointed to us from every hoarding and um, he means the poster with i want you had never captured me I was never under any pressure from public opinion, which had not got to work on the young men as early as that. The white feathers came later. He means the campaign where men who hadn't joined up were given white feathers for cowardice as a way to pressure them into joining the army. I was not carried to the recruiting office in a herd rush of chums. Nobody thinking, everyone half plastered. I went alone. I went to a signal from the unknown. First of all, he actually did all right in the First World War by the standards of the First World War. In the sense, everything is grim. It is horribly grim. But we're not talking Wilfred Owen levels of misery at first. A lot of his friends are injured, but he sort of seemed to 
bounce through. However, he manages to have a devastating accident towards the end of the war. I have to share this with you. Content warning, it is a little bit upsetting. But let's roll with this. One day, it had to happen. It was June now, hot again. Thirsty weather, a lot of chalk dust around. And we were in the front line on a beautiful morning. The platoon rations had just come up. I sent Private O'Neill down the communications trench to bring up some water. And 16 years went by before we saw each other again. I helped a young soldier who had only just joined us out there to take the rations into a dugout. Not a deep dugout, but a small one hollowed out of the parapet. In this dugout, I began sorting out the bread, meat, tea, sugar, tinned milk and so on to give each section its proper share, a, tr a tricky little job. I had done it many times before, hardly ever to anybody's complete satisfaction. But on this morning, I suspect it saved my life. After the explosion, after the explosion when everything had caved in, nobody was certain I was there. But several fellows knew the platoon rations were in there somewhere. That stuff would have to be dug out. There I was then, deciding on everyone's share when I heard a rushing sound and I knew what that meant and knew, though everything had gone into slow motion, I had no hope of getting away before the thing arrived. Just as on earlier and later occasions, when I have thought all was up, the first shrinking in terror was followed as I went into the new slow time by a sense of detachment. I believe from what I learned long afterwards that the Minenwerfer, the German bomb, landed slap in the trench two or three yards away. All I knew at the time was that the world blew up. Luckily for Jack, as lucky as someone can be when a bomb lands on you, he had quite minor injuries, though people standing near him did die. For the rest of his life, he would suffer from claustrophobia and nightmares as a result of this trauma. He, again, Wilfred Owen style, is sent home to recover in a hospital. This is the point at which he meets, kind of for the first time, upper-class professional soldiers, and he does not like them one bit. It just makes him more socialist. After he recovered, he was sent back to the war, back to France, and served in other positions in the army until 1919. The positions he served in are important, but that comes up in a different episode. He was awarded a grant in recognition of his military service and studied for a degree in history and political science at Cambridge. Yes, history grads, 100% the best. And while he was a student, he married his first wife, Pat. We don't know much about Pat. There's one picture that survived, and from all accounts, she seems very nice. They had two daughters, 1923 and 1924, but during the birth of their second child, doctors discovered that Pat had terminal cancer. A year later, Priestley was a widower with two young children. Kind of a grim situation for him to be in. However, priestly style, he constantly had flings, affairs, married women, single women, divorced women. He did not really care. A year later, he married Jane Wyndham Lewis, with whom he'd be having a relationship while he was still married to Pat. Because that is a real dirty dog move when you have two young children and your wife is in a, having a terminal illness as you were out getting new girlfriends. Cheers, Jack. In the 20s, Priestley started freelancing. He wrote essays, he wrote journalism, he proofread, he did all kinds of bits and bobs. 
that 1929 was a big year for him. He had this breakthrough novel, it's called The Good Companions. And I'm going to be honest, I tried reading it for this project. And I read the first chapter and the first chapter was good. And then I sort of gave up because I didn't care about any of the other characters. I found them a bit tedious. But essentially, the good companions, a selection of characters, end up joining a theatrical troupe and find redemption and happiness. And it's all set in Yorkshire and everyone's good. This became a big deal for him. He actually kind of hated it later because it was always like, you wrote good companions. And he's like, I've written a bunch of other stuff. But this is also the period where he starts writing plays. He never really addresses his First World War experiences directly. He refers later to an army reunion, but we don't ever get a sense of him talking about the trauma. Inspector's line of fire and blood and anguish, that's like the only hint we really get. That actually gets its own episode coming up, just discussing what the fire, the blood and the anguish really is. What made him a household name like time and the public have kind of forgotten about jb Priestley now like you google him and all you get is an inspector calls and nothing else in the 40s though he was a big deal he had a sunday night program called postscript in 1940 and 1941 there were 16 million radio listeners a week the only person who got more was winston churchill the literal prime minister <laughs> he was a huge deal he said what holds the attention of most decent folk is a genuine sharing of feelings and views on the part of the broadcaster he must talk if he were among serious friends, and now as if he had suddenly been appointed head of an infant school. People may be almost inarticulate themselves, and yet recognise in an instant when something is at least trying to be real and true is said to them. Thus, it is a useless handing out of a lot of dope nonsense left over from the last war. They may not understand the present war, but unlike many official persons, they do know it is not the last war, that a simple, almost idiotic nationalism will not do. If we are fighting to bring a better world into existence, we are merely assisting at the destruction of such civilization as we possess so you decide for yourself does he sound real and genuine or do you think he's a bit fake do you think this is someone you would draw a connection to if you were hearing this in real time because i'm gonna pay i'm gonna play you a section of the first postscripts broadcast dealing with the dunkirk evacuation and while you're listening just think to yourself is this something which appeals to me does his voice appeal to me does his manner appeal to me can i get why he is such a big deal what was most characteristically english about it so typical of us so absurd and yet so grand and gallant that you hardly know whether to laugh or to cry when you read about them was the part played in the difficult and dangerous embarkation, not by the warships, magnificent though they were, but by the little pleasure steamers. We've known them and laughed at them, these fussy little steamers, all our lives. We've called them the shilling six. We've watched them load and unload their crowds of holiday passengers, the gents full of high spirits and bottled beer, the ladies eating pork pies, the children sticky with peppermint rock. Sometimes they only went as far as the next seaside resort, but the boldest of them might manage a channel crossing to let everybody have a glimpse of Boulogne. 
They were usually paddle steamers, making a great deal more fuss with all their churning than they made speed. And they weren't proud, for they let you see their works going round. They liked to call themselves queens and bells. And even if they were new, there was always something old-fashioned, a Dickens touch, a mid-Victorian air about them. They seemed to belong to the same ridiculous holiday world as pierrots and peers, sandcastles, ham and egg teas, palmists, automatic machines and crowded sweating promenades. But they were called out of that world, and let it be noted, they were called out in good time and good order. Yes, these Brighton Bells and Brighton Queens left that innocent, foolish world of theirs to sail into the inferno, to defy bombs, shells, magnetic mines, torpedoes, machine gun fire, to rescue our soldiers. Some of them, alas, will never return. Among those paddle steamers that will never return was one that I knew well, for it was the pride of our ferry service to the Isle of Wight none other than the good ship Gracie Fields. I tell you, we were proud of the Gracie Fields, for she was the glittering queen of our local line, and instead of taking an hour over her voyage, used to do it, churning like mad in 45 minutes. And now, never again will we board her at Cow's and go down into her dining saloon for a fine breakfast of bacon and eggs. She has paddled and churned away forever. But now, look, this little steamer, like all her brave and battered sisters, is immortal. She'll go sailing proudly down the years in the epic of Dunkirk. And our great-grandchildren, when they learn how we began this war by snatching glory out of defeat and then swept on to victory, may also learn how the little holiday steamers made an excursion to hell and came back glorious. So a lot of people looking back at those broadcasts say that his voice was a contributing factor in his popularity. And he became this like comforting old uncle doing his thing, bringing reassurance to people. Now, one of the great mysteries of this life, of this world, is what happened in autumn 1944. So Priestley's friend... He was a director. He was called Michael McCohen. He invited Priestley to give a lecture to a group of women who were involved in the army, not serving themselves, but they were involved. This lecture, we don't know what was said in it. So annoying. But Priestley used to have periodic clearouts of his notebook, and this one got cleared out. But in this lecture, Priestley mentioned something which sparked in his spectacles because he wrote a letter later to McCohen saying you've asked me why I've never done anything with an idea about a mysterious inspector visiting a family that I mentioned casually to you before the war he looked through this notebook which has been lost and there found details of the inspector and the Burling family and began writing the play really really quickly blinding on past all manner of obstacles and pitfalls and only realizing after how afterwards how dangerous they might have proved so we can say the play was written in 1945 it was first performed in 1946 but actually he started writing it the first draft was done at christmas time 1944 bit like jekyll and hyde absolutely got the idea rip 
done. So I'm always tempted to say it was written in 1944 because that's when he had the idea but 45 yeah whatever once the play was ready to go they needed a theater to put it on and we've got a little bit of controversy here some people say no one in the uk actually wanted to put it on <laughs> but Priestley insisted there was a lot of demand but no theater was suitable enough divert divert for a second inspector calls is actually considered a very minor play it's not considered very important at all in the career of Priestley. It's only become important later. There was a revival production in the 90s set in war-torn Europe. And this is what got people interested in it again. And that's why we teach it. We study it in schools. Generally, no one really cares about it. Same as Love's Philosophy in the anthology. No one cares about it. It's very minor. So while I'm trying to dig this stuff up, it's actually quite difficult. Proper critics, not like me, doing it for a hobby. There actually isn't that much to say about it. One thing we do know is that Priestley's original script was sent to Moscow, where the play premiered in May 1945 and was then sent on a touring production around Europe. I'm not 100% clear why he sent it to Moscow. I think he had a mate there who had a theatre he considered proper. It was shown in London at the Old Vic in 1946. Reviews were mixed. <laughs> the Observer says it could have been stripped to half its length. Though the, though the Burling's offences rank, we feel that they are hardly worth this prolonged clatter of skeletons. The Daily Mail said only severe self-control prevented hollow groans rising throughout the last act from seat E1 in the stalls. My seat was early on in this act that M Mr Priestley disclosed that his moralising play had no theatrical ethics. The stage demands a theatrical solution. He, this reviewer said it came to a fatal dead end. The Daily Mail continues... The actor playing the inspector, looking for something to act in a nebulous part, paraded like some dummy in the tailoring section of a Britain used to make it exhibition. A pitiful sight. However, right, the new statesman said Priestley had beautiful craftsmanship and called the ending the best coup de théâtre of the year, the best triumph of theatre. He said the inspector suggests the unearthly by his very ordinariness. The Sunday Times said, Eric makes of the tragic libertine something that is a long way from wholly vile. The inspector is given a stern, unangry poise, far more effective than all the thunder he obviously has up his sleeve. But the Sunday Times concludes by saying it is not until you leave the theatre that you ask yourself by what magic dullness has been kept away from this modern morality in which no one does anything but talk. Like I said, it, it's quite a minor work. It's not one of his big name ones. 92, it's brought back. And this is where it becomes fashionable. And this is where, properly... We should leave, and in, we should leave Priestley's life. He did really well. He 
turned down the chance to become a life peer on due to his beliefs. But in 1969, he also turned down the Companion of Honour. But he did accept a lesser title called the Order of Merit in 77. He helped found the CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. He saved the London Philharmonic Orchestra from disbanding. But he also went a little bit Arthur Conan Doyle style crackers. In 1963, he started a TV programme in which he shared the opinion that the Western conception of time was wrong. He believed precognition, seeing and feeling the future, was a thing, and that physicists were too afraid to look into it. He compiled a collection of precognitive dreams and experiences and suggested the body react- reacts to future events. He called that FIP, the future influencing the, pa- influencing the past. Your body responds to events in the future and then your mind responds. He was taken seriously he was a public figure but it was not really followed up with science he decided to from a philosophical standpoint attack the forces of scientific orthodoxy and question how convention and common sense ruins us and dictates how we think about time this is proper Arthur Conan Doyle. I love the fairies at the end of my garden territory, isn't it? But let's just ignore that. Let's just ignore that, right? All right. He is obsessed with time in his plays. He's obsessed with things happening at the same time, things we don't know. The Inspector is a time traveller. Big spoiler. I have got a whole episode on why the Inspector is a time traveller and trust, it's not me going to full tinfoil hat. It does actually make sense one of the things he believed in so strongly was that popular fiction should be for ordinary people there's no point writing a book if your average man on the street can't read it i'll say my goodbyes now because i want to give jack his final word it's absolutely beautiful I am Catherine, STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkenglish.co.uk forward slash books, buy a book, forward slash support the show, support the show, and play us out, Jackie Priestley. Some people still seem surprised that I do so many different kinds of work, plays, novels, films, broadcasts, and so on. On the other hand, I think most people now like a writer to express himself in many different ways, so long as he knows the techniques. And that's important for after the war, because it gives the young writers bigger and better opportunities. Now, what should the writer do? Well, I believe that a writer's job now is to try and understand the whole wide social scene, to understand what people are thinking and feeling, fearing and hoping, and then to express as vividly and dramatically as possible that understanding and those feelings. 
A writer now should speak for the people. And I believe that after the war, the young writers will have a great opportunity.